Good morning, guys. How are y'all? Better now that you had some food, probably? Okay. Okay, so today uh, our question will be, hasn't science disproven Christianity? And you guys may recall that Megan answered a very similar question about a year ago during the Ask Anything series. And she did such an excellent job that my task today will be to present essentially you know, similar ideas in a different light that may be of use to you as you walk out your faith in the world. If you struggle with this question or any associated question, hopefully this will help you parse out the nuance behind them, though I hate the word nuance. Um, so hasn't science disproven Christianity is a very broad question, and in order to answer it fully, we have to ask some other questions that are more narrow in scope but are closely related. And we're going to go with these three. Is science in direct conflict with faith in God? Are they contradictory? Is God made evident through the pursuits of the sciences? And hasn't science presented evidence that disproves the Bible's account? So this is a lot to take care of in 19 minutes and 48 seconds. Um, cool. So the first question, is science in direct conflict with faith in God? Are they contradictory? So a pastor in Houston, or the Houston area, named Chris Nagel asks it this way, do you really have to check your brain at the door to be a Christian? So let's ask a very basic question that will help us define terms. What is science? The systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation, experimentation, and the testing of theories against the evidence obtained. This isn't complicated, guys. I literally went on Google and I searched define science. This came from uh, the Oxford Dictionary Online, so we're going to accept it because it's a reputable source. But from this definition, we can understand that science is orderly. It has a system to it, and we know this today is a scientific method. I make the safe assumption you know about the scientific method, right? You've heard about this. You're in at least ninth grade. Okay, fantastic. So, science is the act of observing the world around us, sometimes introducing actions, compounds, stimuli, or whatever, to see what will happen. And then we write it down, and we share our findings. So, what scope does science deal with? According to this definition, it deals with the physical and the natural world. Anything we can measure or directly observe falls into some kind of scientific discipline. Okay, so from the position of someone who is a Christian, who made the physical and natural world? God. Good. Okay. So science is humanity observing and measuring and messing around with God's creation to obtain knowledge of the world around us. That doesn't sound like there should be this big conflict here. So what exactly is the problem? The problem is that science, being finite and limited in scope, cannot directly address God. Not directly. God is infinite. He exists outside of time and space, and none of what we know about the physical or natural world can control him. Science is limited to whatever we can measure. Whatever our senses or our instruments can detect is what we are confined to. The issue in the scientific community begins when scientists, intelligent people with imago day, whether they know that or not, move into st something called strict materialism, which is essentially that means they will only accept what science tells us is there and absolutely nothing else. But that reasoning leaves absolutely no room for anything unexpected. 
according to the natural order as we understand it, cutting out even the possibility of the supernatural. And guess what? God is very supernatural. The argument from many atheistic scientists may be illustrated like this. I'll believe it when I see it. So there's this guy. I like him a lot. His name's Alvin Planiga. This is what he looks like. He is 92 this year. And he responded to that argument in this way. This argument is like the drunk who insisted on looking for his lost car keys only under the street light on the grounds that the light was better there. In fact, it would go the drunk one better. It would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. So put this another way. Okay. Imagine, I know, bring it down here for a second. Okay. Imagine what if you had spent your entire life inside this room and you were taught and what, from what you observed, there was nothing outside of this room, nothing to the world but void past those doors. This is, of course, all you've ever been able to see. So what if then I told you that there was something that you'd never experienced possible outside of this room? What if I were to try to tell you what a horse is? Okay, what if I tried to describe that to you? You would have a bit of a choice to make. You could believe me seeing that maybe there could be something more to life outside of this room, or to you, you could, or you could say, I'll believe it when I see it. So that's a, I know that's really heady, it's really up here, but that's, I think, a decent description of the parameters that materialism leaves someone to deal with. Science cannot look outside the room. It cannot detect God, and he does not obey it. It will never be able to disprove or prove the existence of God directly. However, science does provide evidence for the existence of God in an indirect way. Before we can actually answer that first question we put up on the screen, we have to address the second one, which is, is God made evident through the pursuits of the sciences? In short, absolutely. We know this because he left us confirmation in nature and even in our own personhood. And Romans 1:19 through 20 says this, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So there are some believers calling themselves agnostic Christians uh, will say that they believe in God, but will say they aren't sure because they don't have enough proof. S scripture doesn't say this, actually. It says that God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Nature is full of the fingerprints of God, and there are so many of those fingerprints, it's hard to narrow it down, but I'm going to spend some time on three things because I personally find them most convincing. The constants of the laws of physics, the mathematics behind the Big Bang, and the irrefutable existence of the Imago Dei. Okay. Focus. I know you just had donuts, but just hang on. Okay. So number one, the existence of constants. What is a constant? Does anybody know? It's, an, it's a number, right? It's a value. 
that you can take for granted in science, essentially. Did you know that the universe, as we understand it, depends on about 20 constants to operate? The laws of physics depend on gravitational, electrical, and magnetic forces that hold everything together. These values are so integral that they are the root of concepts like molecular cohesion and why certain molecular bonds are hard or easy to break. They dictate the path of planets around stars. They are the reason that you are not sitting on the floor or even through the floor because your chair holds you up. They are also behind your ability to see and hear me right now because of the movement of waves detectable to the human senses. The thing about constants is that they are constant. Okay? This points to a God who is orderly and immutable or unchanging. And he prefers not to completely shake up how he created the universe to operate. The way his universe works makes sense. And we can watch and learn how it works, even with the effects of sin upon it. Okay, so topic number two is the Big Bang. Consider this. This, this theory is my favorite, honestly, because it may be one of the best validating arguments for belief in God that I have ever heard. This is a major oversimplification, what I'm about to do, okay? But it goes something like this. Here's a little history. Using mathematical models and principles handed down by Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking, you know this guy, you've seen him, an atheist and a really smart guy, worked his way back to the moment of singularity when he and other theorists thought the universe was born. When he reached the point of singularity, he tried to look behind that and was unsatisfied with the model because the math broke down. It's really frustrating for a really smart mathematician. His conclusion was that the variable for time could not exist prior to the Big Bang and that the action that had made the bang also made the dimension we know as time. So you're telling me, simple little old me, okay, that there was nothing but a point existing with absolutely no energy and at zero degrees Kelvin that time did not exist and then something happened and then everything began to exist and time began to progress forward. Sound familiar? So proponents of the Big Bang Theory have speculated for years about what that something was. Most of them deny the existence of God out of principle. They keep rewriting the models. Still looking for answers, right before he died, Hawking reworked his own models to try and include the idea of the multiverse. That there are multiple parallel universes that could be the source of energy necessary for the Big Bang, but he was uncomfortable with the scope of that math. It didn't make sense to him either. And also, wait a minute, so we're going to assume that there are multiple, a multitude, a myriad of universes, and that one of them bumped into our singularity and caused rapid, violent expansion. Can we see or otherwise detect these universes? Where did they get their energy to give to us? Can we extrapolate this information using mathematics applied to natural science? We cannot. So there seems to be a kind of a double standard here. By a materialist logic, I'll see it when I believe it. If we can't measure it, then why would we think it exists? It sounds very much like someone is trying to work around an inconvenient truth than someone who is looking objectively at the problem. But this makes absolute sense in light of the next verse from our Romans passage, which is verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, 
they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, kind of sounds like someone's trying to ignore some evidence here. But in contrast, I find God's attributes in the idea of the Big Bang itself, that he is creative, omnipotent, intelligent, and intentional. And let's talk finally about the Imago Dei, or the image of God. So science doesn't like this topic. Um, the principle, this principle in our faith, tells us that all human beings have inherent value and are capable of moral judgments. And this concept can be observed, observed in cultures across the globe. Again, this is well-documented human behavior, and it falls under the scope of sociology. How do we know that murder is bad? How do we know that strong, rich, and powerful humans should not oppress weak, poor, and vulnerable humans? Sociologists and naturalists and materialists, all of these people who have a tendency to reject the idea of God, can argue that we don't actually know that humans are inherently valuable and moral to their core. But try to argue that, try to argue that in a society and see if it would be better if human value and moral capacity didn't exist in public mind. As theologian and apologist Rebecca McLaughlin says, to maintain their beliefs about goodness, fairness, justice, and so forth, a secular humanist read someone who believes that we're here by accident, uh, two must hold that humans are moral beings distinct from other primates. The question is on what grounds, and ultimately the answer cannot be scientific. In fact, we do know about the Imago Dei inherently. We know it and believe it so strongly that in order to violate another human being by murder or oppression, people often have to reclassify the weak, the poor, and the vulnerable as non-human or even less human. So here's where we get a little uncomfy. Let me tell you about this guy, Charles Darwin. Heard of him? Okay, so he wrote a book called The Origin of Species. It has way more subtitles to that, but we're just going to call it origin, okay? He, cons he is considered the father of modern evolutionary theory, and he wrote and believed some uncomfortable things that his adherents still try to distance themselves from. Based on Darwin's commentaries, some of Darwin's students wrote and believed that European and Anglo-Saxon people were more evolved than any other race. Down the line, these tenets would be borrowed by a guy named Adolf Hitler. But outside of Imago Dei, from a scientific perspective, why would students of Darwin and Hitler be wrong in their assumptions? We know that they are, but we can't explain it using naturalist means. Science cannot answer this question. Philosophy can come close, but faith can answer it. Because all humans carry God's image and the worth that he gave us, and we have the capacity to make moral judgments. Imago Dei also teaches us about God, namely his justice, and a little piece of what he thinks about humanity. And to finally answer the first question, is science in direct conflict with faith in God? Are they contradictory? So if science is made up of observations and measurements, and if God can be inferred from what we observe and measure, then absolutely not. They are not contradictory. In fact, science can confirm faith, as it has for many fathers of science. Take Isaac Newton, for example, 
the father of physics, was a Christian, though unorthodox, and most, his most important scientific work was a volume with a really long Latin name that we call Principia, or Principles. He published it in 1687, a long time ago. He started some of the earliest known documentation of universal constants in his work and recognized the creator behind them, stating, stating that his entire reason for writing Principles was to convince the modern thinking man that there is a deity. He used science, he wrote science, and he worshiped God in it. Also this guy, Gregor Mendel, was the father of genetics. He's the guy that did the experiments with pea plants. He was an Augustinian monk. All right, he was a Christian and remained so his entire life. So these guys are long dead, but what about this guy? His name is Francis Collins. He is in his 70s. In 2021, he retired from being um, the lead of the National Institutes of Health. He is the guy who led the Human Genome Project. He came to Christ as he was studying the genome, finding that God was evident in the basic molecules that build our bodies. Published multiple books on Christian apologetics and said the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. So science paired with faith isn't a bygone. And you don't have to suspend your intelligence to believe in God. Christianity is reasonable. But if we are going to be intelligent, reasonable people, we need to deal with the third question, which is, hasn't science presented evidence that disproves the Bible's account? So the scientific community at large takes issue with scripture on two main fronts. And these are the fronts. How do we deal with Darwin? and the fact that miracles don't fit into a materialist framework, okay? So how do we deal with Darwin? Let's deal with that. I'm not going to get super deep in the weeds over this. And I know this may be surprising to some, but in the Genesis account, Genesis 1 through 3, Christians differ in interpretation of what exactly happened It is important to wrestle with these questions, but it is not crucial, okay? Don't let this be a stumbling block to you. Um, many God-fearing Christians disagree with one another about how to interpret the literary styles of Genesis. Was it, was it stylized prose? Um, did we get, is it a comparison to a, a different, um, almost fable from a different society called, um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, it was written mainly divinely inspired by God through people to tell us who and why, not necessarily how. Although we can agree on the fact that God created the earth, we agree with that. We can disagree about exactly how. Did God create the earth in a six literal 24-hour period system? Or did the day represent an age or an eon that God worked through? Is the earth 7,000 years old or is it billions and billions of years old? What if God created the earth in six days but made it mature, confounding our observations? Did he use evolution as his method or was he more direct? And what if the theory of evolution is a gross misinterpretation of the facts? What if it isn't? These are good questions to wrestle with and I invite you to do that but it is unlikely that we will receive a definite answer about them in our lifetime. 
again, the important message from the biblical creation accounts is that God created the earth. He created mankind, and he has put evidence of himself in the earth so that we can know who he is and how he is. What is crucial in Christianity specifically is how you deal with the second statement. Miracles don't fit into a materialist framework. It should not surprise us that people who depend solely on what they can observe or measure would be uncomfortable with miracles. Miracles do not obey the natural order. That is kind of the point. Miracles are not supposed to be something we finite humans can anticipate. They are works of God, contrary to the natural order, where he steps in and changes things to prove that he's God, and he has every right to do so, and he often does so for the benefit of his people. The biggest miracle that the materialist community loves to hate on is Jesus' resurrection. Dead people just simply do not come back to life, except for when they do. If your worldview doesn't have space for miracles, you're going to struggle with the concept of Jesus' resurrection. Theologian Timothy Keller addressed this evidence in his book, The Reason for God, stating that we have too much well-documented historical evidence for the resurrection to ignore it or to say that it didn't happen. And you touched on this last week with Dave. He also says this, if you don't short circuit the process with the philosophical bias against the probability or possibility of miracle, then the resurrection of Jesus has the most evidence for it. The problem is, however, that people do short circuit the investigation instead of doing the work of answering these very difficult, very tough historical questions and then following the answers where they lead, they bail out with the objection that miracles are impossible. They are impossible, except to God. We, no, no Christian would argue that point. <laughs> if you struggle, or if you have a friend struggling through how to reconcile science and faith, we need to start with the most important part of faith, which is Jesus. Is he who he said he is? What, do you what you believe about Jesus will make or break this. And remember what we briefly covered last week in Acts 26? Okay, let me give context in case you need a refresher. So toward the end of his journeys documented in the book of Acts, Paul found himself in prison in Caesarea for preaching the gospel. He was accused of heresy and desecration by Jewish uh, religious officials and tried before two different Roman governors, the latest one, Portius Festus. He presented his case before Festus and King Agrippa, recalling his conversion experience on the road to Damascus and ultimately sharing the gospel. And here's what happened after his testimony. This is not on the screen, just listen. This is in verse uh, 24 through 29. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. 
what I am saying is true and reasonable because it was not done in a corner. The evidence can speak for itself. It is far from unreasonable to believe in the resurrection and saving work of Christ. We can know it with great confidence that Jesus did raise from the dead. Science cannot and will not explain it, nor can it explain any other miraculous work found in Scripture. And all science can do is point to God's attributes and tell us what is there and not why. But it does so over and over, and the evidence is hard to ignore. We're going to pray, and then we can go discuss. Dear Lord, I pray for the minds and the hearts of everyone in this room, that we would be able to absorb what is useful about this knowledge, and that we would use it to glorify you. I pray that you would be with us as we struggle with difficult concepts, and we struggle with a world that is bent on denying you. I pray that any confusion and any lack of peace would be lifted, and pray that we would glorify you in our discussions as we move forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. If you don't know where you're going, you can come talk to me. I know Caleb's in the booth back there. We have lots of leaders who can help direct you. Thanks.